This is Forbes Sports Money on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Mike Ozanian. This show is all about the business of sports. Today we have Wick Grosbeck, managing partner and governor of the Boston Celtics on our show. Wick, thanks a lot for coming on. Mike, glad to be here. Always good to see you. So technology is having a huge impact on sports. What are some of the big ways through the lens that you view this as a team owner, you're seeing technology transform sports? It's everything from figuring out who our fans are. We watch social media and interact with fans to bringing them to the games, getting them to buy tickets, finding out what they want to experience um, at the games and delivering it to them. Uh, that's just the social side. There's, there's streaming. It's how they, you know, we're streaming our games to fans all over the world in the NBA. Hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, actually, at the NBA from digital streaming of rights, which is super exciting. It's a huge growth area for us. We can talk about eSports. We can talk about sports that are actually made up of technology, eSports and that whole thing. The NBA now has an e-league that we're going to launch next year. There's fantasy sports, there's gambling and all that. That's all sort of technology-based, obviously. There's, there's almost anything you can think of. Uh, technology's impacting everything about sports. Let's start with eSports. I mean, because that's something that's really just picked up over the last few years. And, you know, I remember going back seven, eight years ago, watching my nephews play video games, thinking, oh, man, you know, what a waste of time. You know, they're, they're never going to get anything out of this or you know why don't they play real sports and and now i look at it and it's hard to tell what the difference is um why did the nba get involved in esports we love the way uh the younger fans are engaging with esports we see that the you know madison square garden sells out in six minutes for an esports event um it's actually a billion dollar business now uh worldwide and growing and we think we've got expertise and infrastructure we've got these arenas we've got the ability to organize leagues organize a player draft and compensation system. And we've got NBA 2K, a great game from Take-Two Interactive, our partners. And so we thought we'd do a global league uh, or a league marketed globally of uh, each NBA team having its own esports franchise and playing NBA 2K. You know, I was reading that last year at the Staples Center in Los Angeles that the event that they had there for League of Legends, right, one of the most popular esports games, actually drew a larger crowd than the Lakers game did. You know, tell us about the popularity of, of the game. Well, the Lakers didn't have a particularly good season. <laughs> Post-Kobe, it's been a little tough, right? Um, let, let's get to the economics, though. Can you give me a broad perspective of how the E-League for the NBA may work? Well, we don't know what the economics will be yet. We're, we're still in sort of a trial phase. This first season coming up will be an interesting one. It'll be more of an R&D season probably than a full-fledged, you know, uh, complete huge thing. But we think the economics are real. The teams will each invest. We will each opt in. The Celtics will be opting in. There will be an E-Celtics. We will find players. We will compensate these players. We'll house them in Boston. They'll be a team. They will train, and there is training for this. Uh, And then we'll go compete against the other NBA teams uh, in 2K. So, the economics of it are that we will we will have media rights. We will stream these matches, um, uh, the competitions. There will be a tournament. There will be sponsors and advertisers. And we'll see how the economics play out. Could ultimately having an E-team uh, help the uh, fan base, increase the fan base for the actual NBA team as well? I think so, and we've seen that. There are E-teams in pro soccer, 
uh, and and the NFL is talking about an, an initiative like this as well. So there are some other. There's definitely pro soccer, European soccer uh, e teams. I was talking to one the other day, um, and it's it's uh, it's definitely it's a fan base that crosses over. You look at the NBA, and at least in my uh, opinion, of all the major sports in the United States right now, it's the most global sport. I know the NBA has been growing rapidly outside of the U.S., places like Asia, places like South America. Esports are incredibly popular in Asia. Is, is that a potentially hot market that you see for this? For sure. We think everything, uh, everything we do internationally really starts with Asia these days or, or has a big focus on Asia. I'll go back to what I said earlier about streaming. Our streaming rights just in China alone are, are doing incredibly well. I mean, it's, it's major, major revenue uh, for the teams in the league, hundreds of millions of dollars. And so then you just overlay eSports on top of that, and you, you hope that we can make this startup idea of the NBA E-League into a success. But like I say, it's still early. When you bring in sponsors for eSports, is there much of an overlap for the traditional sponsors in the NBA, whether it be those that – uh, advertise at the Garden or on television, for example? Or do you think it's going to bring in an influx mostly of new sponsors? I haven't studied that as closely. The league is just bringing the teams into the planning process for that. We have some sponsors that skew a little bit younger, and we have some sponsors at the Celtics that are a little more mature or you know, focusing on the sort of uh, you know, 25 to 50 age uh, bracket as well. I can imagine energy drinks and all sorts of things um, maybe coming in and just maybe only sponsoring our eSports team. We'll, we'll have to see. Another real hot area is virtual reality. Can you tell me what your view of that is? My view of it is that personally I haven't found the application or the system yet that I would use, um, although I'm a little bit out of the age demographic, I admit. Uh, but we've been looking at it. I'm, I'm part of a, a venture firm with two partners, Causeway Media Partners, and we have a serious effort at looking at VR and AR. Uh, we think there will be roles for it going forward, but we haven't found the right investment yet. Let's talk a little bit more about Causeway Media Partners. Why did you start it, and what is its mission? It goes back to how I got involved with controlling the Celtics back in '02. The reason for buying control of the Celtics with my partners was to go win a championship or hopefully multiple championships and, and, and really bring back Celtic pride. It was really not a financial operation. There were finances involved, but this was done out of love and passion. But along the way, I learned so much about the business and saw so much more potential in the business that I wanted to put real money to work, more money to work uh, in sports. And really, as we see technology coming in and changing everything about sports, it gives a technology-based venture fund an opportunity to put money to work and really expect some really nice returns. So I got together with my two favorite invest investment partners from the past. We put the band back together. We've raised two funds now, uh, and we're investing in all sorts of things, from ticketing to new leagues to uh, stadium operation software to streaming. Flow Sports streams 22 different types of sports on channels, uh, just digitally. It's a, it's, a, it's a really nice portfolio stuff. We're super excited about it. All right. The, the ticketing stuff really gets me because I'm an old school guy. When I used to go to Madison Square Garden a lot when I, before I uh, had a full-time job, you know, the good old days, uh, Ranger games, Nick games, you know, I'd be out there scalping, you know, and try to wait as close as I could to game time so I can hopefully get something at face value or below. Now, online ticketing, it's, it's a whole new dynamic. Um, 
What does that mean in your view in terms of the business of sports? It's really good from an owner's perspective. It's good to have our fans have a liquid ticket market. We want to sell, and we're right in the middle of selling and renewing our full season tickets for the Celtics. 41 games, home games, plus hopefully playoffs is a lot for anybody to bite off if they don't think they can resell some of those games or give them away to friends. But reselling or giving them away is made easier by sites like SeatGeek. It's an app. We run close to $400 million of tickets through SeatGeek every year. Not Celtics tickets. I'm saying just everybody's tickets, whether it's from Hamilton on Broadway to the Knicks and the Rangers to, uh, to the Patriots. And so if we, you and I were free tonight and we wanted to go out, uh, you know, we'd, we'd just get on SeatGeek and you'd see every ticket that's available and you'd see every price. SeatGeek gives you a rating, two clicks, sort of like Uber, and the ticket's there on your phone. So you can go stand on the corner if you want, but most people on the corner are standing there looking at SeatGeek. What's the key thing, and when you look at SeatGeek, uh, to keep it at the above the com- competition, if you will? You know, because is it being able to continually invest in new technology? Uh, is it uh, pricing? What's the key there? So they're actually pushing. It's a great question. They're pushing from the secondary market, which we've just talked about, reselling tickets. They're pushing into uh, primary ticketing, and so they've made a deal with Major League Soccer. They're now the official primary ticketing partner of MLS, and they're ticketing several teams, including uh, Sporting KC and the Portland Timbers. So fantastic experience there, doing the ticketing, being the base ticketing platform for these really significant teams in this uh, really exciting sport. They're looking for other primary partners in ticketing, and so they're going to move to not just reselling, but actually giving the fan the tickets right up front. Electric Vehicle Racing Series. Formula E. Okay, Discuss with me the economics of that and how popular that is becoming. It's growing in popularity. It's not yet uh, even uh, you know significant compared to Formula One, which is a the leader in the sport and and is our aspirational goal to be sort of a, a alongside them, but in a different market, not combustion powered, but in fact environmentally more green and sustainable, but being electric powered. So we look like Formula One cars. We've got a lot of Formula One people involved with us. And we've really, the, the great news is because the cars are quieter, although they're not totally quiet, they can race in the great cities of the world. And I mean in the great cities. So we race in downtown Paris, downtown Hong Kong, Beijing. And this July, we've got back-to-back races on the Brooklyn waterfront. So it's really exciting. So it's the first significant, you know, these are cars going 150 miles an hour, beautiful cars. And there's, you know, Audis and BMWs and Jaguars racing around at 150 miles an hour with Manhattan in the backdrop um, background on, in July. So really exciting. Fans are taking notice. Sponsors are coming in. Uh, and financially, things are going better and better every year. Do you think you, that's something you can also get on TV or streamed? It is on TV and streamed right now. It's on Fox right now, Fox Sports in the U.S., and it's global. Um, and it is also streamed. And it is still a building process, but we're, we're feeling pretty good about this. We've been invested in this for a couple of years now, two or three years. This is our third season of racing, um, and it's better and better. When you're able to say that Jaguar and BMW and Audi came in in the last year and Mercedes took an option on the next team, it's the manufacturers sort of voting and saying, we want to let young urban-dwelling people know that we make electric cars. That you can see a, an electric-powered Jaguar going fast makes you think maybe Jaguar knows something about electric cars. I'll go check out their vehicle line because most people don't know Jaguar and BMW make electric cars. 
Are the budgets for an eSports car similar to that of a Formula One car? No, it's very important. And another great question, we have a salary cap, a spending cap, basically, for our teams. The, the Formula One spending can get way out of hand. It can be 400 million pounds a year to field a Formula One team. We're uh, one-hundredth of that. Um, so it's a sustainable model in every way, not just because it's electric, but because the, uh, the spending is under control. You know, the other thing that uh, came to my mind when I was reading about this is that you know, F1 has tried, and not too successfully, to make inroads into the United States. It's mostly been popular in Europe and in South America. And I'm just wondering, the fact that these are electric cars and uh, the fact that green technology has been a big movement for that in the United States, do you think that is an advantage for you guys to make inroads in the U.S.? Well, we race. we've had a race in Miami. We've had several in Los Angeles. Now we're excited about Brooklyn. Um, but we, it's, it's hard to really break. It, it's hard to, for me to say that we're going to you know, dominate the U.S. I think that electric vehicles and, and environmental consciousness is pretty, you know, it's at a high level in Asia right now, and it's at a high level in Europe, and it's in a growing level but still lower in the U.S., and so we're building it here. But that's what we do at Causeway, and that's what venture people do. You know, that's what I tried to do when I bought the Celtics was you know, build for the long term, and so that's, that's how we're doing it. Another thing you mentioned was uh, Flow Show? Flow Sports, yeah. Flow Sports. Uh, and that's streaming? Right. Okay, so I'm watching a game on TV. My nephews are sitting next to me, and they're watching the same thing on their smartphone. But now the shift, what I'm seeing is people are doing both. They have a second the screen. second screen and all that, yep. How is that going to pan out in the future, in your view? I think, you know, and people are even doing that in arena now and, and all of that, and they're watching replays and they're watching commentary in arena on their phones. You can see all of that. I, I guess I think that uh, I've got kids and, and stepkids, and, one, you know, and most of them are buried in their phones all the time. So the idea of trying to ask them to put the phone down to watch a sport doesn't seem to make any sense. So I think you've got to bet on... Uh, giving the people what they want that as a team owner or as an investor, you know, you want to, you want to go with the flow as opposed to uh, telling people what they can't do. Forbes sports money. will take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey, it's Jordan Harbinger for the last 10 years. I've successfully helped people build their self-confidence with my art of charm podcast. And now along with art of charm, I'm hosting a new show. It's podcast one's latest program, the Forbes list. On the show, we talk to the Forbes editors that curate their famous and respected lists, like self-made richest people, billionaires, and highest-paid athletes. We'll get behind-the-scenes insight and information that doesn't make the print cut. So please subscribe on iTunes to the Forbes list, and don't forget to rate us, review, and share. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Every bunny loves honey-glazed carrots, a great side dish for your springtime celebration, and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Your Bloody Mary bar will be the talk of brunch with the vodka I'm stocking. Pile those toppings sky high. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! How much of consuming sports content do you think over the next, say, four or five years is going to drift towards streaming and away from traditional TV? You know, I'm just thinking in terms of we've seen, you know, what's been in the press. ESPN has lost a lot of uh, uh, subscribers. The number of TVs in households 
uh, has, has been trending down. Um, is it uh, feasible to uh, monetize the streaming content in a similar fashion to the way the leagues have uh, the content from television? So I, I see both sides of it because at the Celtics, we both stream our games and put them over cable with Comcast Sportsnet and with the national providers. So we have a national deal with ESPN and Turner, and then we have a local deal with Comcast Sportsnet. That's for television. But we also stream. We stream on NBA League Pass and overseas worldwide, and we stream on uh, ComcastSportsnet.com. And so we've got – and we, we get a daily report of the number of live views and, and sessions and all of that. But we require a cable subscription, uh, you know, for people to, to watch our Comcast feed. I guess I'd say sport by sport, the traditional biggest sports are, uh, are being snapped up by the traditional deep-pocketed providers like the Comcasts and Disneys to keep them and, – and they're not really putting them out for streaming quite as much. And what you see is the, the peripheral sports, the younger sports, the newer sports, the eSports, Formula E – the things that we stream on flowsports.tv, which is wrestling and track and cheerleading competitions, things like that, skiing, those will go streaming, whereas the big sports might stay more broadcast. We have a long-term deal with Comcast, long-term deal with Disney, long-term deal with Turner. So you know, we'll probably stay more traditional with a little bit of streaming around the edge, and then the newer sports are going to be more streaming. I know with your uh, venture firms, Session one was uh, working with a lot of large corporations, a lot of the top Forbes 500 companies. Are you still helping them? Yeah, Session M is a, um, is a mobile-focused sort of customer. Uh, it's called the Consumer Marketing Platform, and it's, uh, there's a whole new way of interacting with your mobile customers. And it really started with sports teams in this case and migrated out, and now it's Nike and Starbucks and McDonald's using it to, to power their rewards programs and and uh, engage with their customers. When you engage with a with a company on their mobile website off your smartphone, they don't necessarily know who you are. It's not the same as your desktop. There aren't as many cookies. It's just a different architecture. And there are a bunch of databases in the big company, and you've got to sort of update them all with this mobile signal. And it's actually very hard to do, and Session M knows how to do it. So we're really excited about those guys. Does having all this new technology... Does it actually help you as a team owner collect more information about your fans in terms of what it is they want yes, when exactly. they come to and enhance that experience? And we actually we pay very close attention to what they tell us they want. We survey them and everything else, but you also just watch the social media and understand what people are saying. Because if they're posting it publicly, you're, it's not snooping at all. They're, they want people to read it, and so we read it, and we respond the best we can. The Celtics really, since the day I came in and before, We've really tried to be a you know really fan friendly place. This is about Celtic pride. It's about all the championships and great players of the past, and just trying to bring it forward. And so we try to listen to the fans and, and get their help. What's been your evolution with uh, social media? You know, some some team owners uh, uh, like it a lot more than others. And is it something that you personally like? Are you more of like a Mark Cuban type or a Ted Leonsis type, or you kind of like uh, stay a little bit out of the mix? You'd have a tough time finding me on Twitter or <laughs> Facebook, or you know, we had Bill Belichick at the other at the game the other night. My friend Bill, everybody's friend Bill, but uh, you know, he called it Snapface or Book Chat or something. He doesn't even know the name, but uh, I, I think I actually know the names of these apps. But 
I keep off it. Nobody's, uh, you know, nobody's interested in my own thoughts on anything. We, we, we communicate through the Celtics, but the Celtics are one of the most active teams on social media, um, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, Twitter, Facebook, all of that, and really multi-millions of people following us, and we, we love doing that, and it's a great way to connect with the fans. What about the players? Do you encourage them to use social media to build their brands? We do. We also give them training and guidelines and suggestions and rules about how to do it. We've, we find a guy in the past for posting something inappropriate out of the locker room or something, some sort of snippet of video. can't remember exactly what it was, but I do remember there was a fine. And, uh, uh, you know, we make it clear that there's, there are standards. If you're a Celtic, there are standards you need to uphold, and whether or not it's social media or just in any aspect of your life. Another uh, phrase that uh, we're hearing a lot of the last year or so is big data. Uh, what's your take on that? And, and specifically, uh, how do you incorporate it for the Celtics? Well, I know we do. Um, mm-hmm. I'm aware of the phrase. I was a history major myself, so I'm not a data scientist. But um, we try to learn everything we can about what's going on. We, when I came in, we priced every ticket the same for every game. And it was a big change to just say, look, we're going to have A, a games, B games, and C games, and do a little bit of variable pricing along the way. Now, literally every ticket for every game is variably priced. Um, you know, if it's not a season, if it's not sold as a season, but even getting into the season pricing, uh, there's a lot of data that goes into that. So the, the amount of stuff that we crunch, just figuring out ticket pricing and changing it daily, sort of like an airline, um, is huge. Then on the basketball side, we've just signed a data partnership with GE, our new uniform patch sponsor. Um, and there's a lot of data in th- that they want to bring to the table in terms of injury prevention and rehab, uh, you know, re- rehabbing injured knees or shoulders or whatever it is. We also do a lot of, there's, we have five full-time data scientists out in the basketball side just looking at players' college performances and trying to predict pro performance and draft, you know, where we should draft them based on college and also looking at our plays and the opposing plays and what plays we should work in, which lineup works. And by the way, every NBA arena now has overhead, six overhead cameras capturing player movement. And so you've got all the databases of what every team runs and which player is doing what. It's just from visual recognition of the players. And so you've got, there's more data coming out of every game than you can imagine. It would, you know, it, it, it's oceans or oceans or universes of data. And so we're crunching as much of it as we can. Since you've launched Causeway Media Partners, how big has it become? And what are the areas you're most excited about investing in the future? Our first fund was about $130 million. We've just about invested all of that now into eight really, really great companies. We've sold one of them. We're really happy with how uh, that's going, although I'm going to find some wood to knock on, but really, really happy. So on the basis of that, we've raised Causeway 2 with just about all of the same limited partners and some new ones, and that'll be north of $200 million when we get that closed, finally closed later this spring. So um, super excited about Causeway and growing. We're located on both coasts. In terms of what we're looking at, we will have uh, more investments in the fan experience, more investments in streaming. We believe that Things are going mobile, and you know the, the, it's the millennials, and it's mobile, and so sports are getting sort of younger, and even the legacy sports need to connect with the younger generation. They're connecting through the phone and through the streaming. So a lot of our investments are around that. We're looking at how technology impacts everything from merchandising and food service and video replays at events and 
and uh, and ticketing and everything else. So it's just every aspect of the sports fan experience um, is being touched by technology, and we're investing in just about every aspect of it. One thing that just pops into my head as we're having this discussion is, has all this technology and things like you know the uh, uh, esports has it changed the definition of what an athlete is? I mean, are gamers athletes? Well, are golfers athletes? <laughs> are pool players darts? Yeah, uh, you know, golfers are athletes. I guess I'm a little tired after I take 120 swings at the ball when I'm supposed to only take 70. But um, uh, definitely competition, especially going forward, we're going to define competition or competitive athletes as. Uh, you know, esports. You know, it is included. We used to call them mathletes, right? They were the guys that were the men and women who were so smart. You'd call them like the mathletes. So this this is a competition. It's like Bobby Fischer uh, playing chess against Boris Spassky. I mean, that that gripped the whole world, and it was two guys playing chess. I mean, this is it's a competition I would watch. You look at some of these e gamers, uh, you know, places like Asia, China. They're like cult heroes. Yeah, I mean, they have and they make a couple million dollars a year. It's not a bad gig for a twenty-year-old kid. Has getting involved in these other businesses or extending out? Uh, you know, you, the Celtics have done it very well. There have been some other teams that have done it too. Uh, staying in Boston, the Kraft family's been successful at it. Has it actually helped bring interest in, you know, not for majority owners, but if you wanted to bring in, let's say, limited partners that are people saying, you know, hey, I, you know, I'm really interested in just being even a one or two percent owner of this team because I also have interest in this, this and this type of technology or know how in this they could bring that to the table. I could see how that would be. I mean, I, I, I get your point. I'm not sure I can think of exi- specific examples, but I would also say. Just there's so many technology companies that are just doing so well, and Snap just went public uh, yesterday, you know, and went up 40% uh, the day we're taping this, you know, was the day after Snap's IPO. There are now more billionaires in the world than ever before, and these are the people who want to buy teams. And so it just comes back down to you got to generate the wealth in order to then, you know, sort of buy into sports. So whether or not it's be- they're buying in because of they want to bring their technology expertise to it, but you can you can think of Robert Perra, who's a technology, uh, or Steve Ballmer, two great technology entrepreneurs who have bought majority control of teams just recently. Um, you know, they part of why Steve Ballmer, you know, he said publicly and privately why he wanted to come in. He wanted to rethink everything from broadcasting. You know, he's trying to go stream the Clippers games now to data and everything else. He wants to make the Clippers really a technology company, and he wants to win a championship. And I believe Ron Adive out there with the Sacramento Kings, another tech big data guy. And uh, I think that's uh, that's something he's trying to do with uh, the Kings as well. Yes. And, you know, he, he wants to connect us to India better. He said he wants NBA 3.0. He's got a lot of ideas. And um, I'm just focusing on Celtics, you know, 1.0 at this point. But I'll, I'll look forward to Vivek's help. All right. Let's, let's stick with the Celtics and, and the NBA here in terms of valuations, right? Because at the end of the day... Well, you're the man. You tell me. <laughs> at the end of the day, all this is slowly but surely being monetized and, enhan- and, and enhancing the appeal and the demand uh, for teams. The question is, to, to what extent? Uh, what's your feeling in terms of... Let's start with the big market teams, certainly... Nothing can compare with Los Angeles, New York, or Boston, or, and Chicago, really, and, except maybe Golden State. Let's throw them in there. The Silicon Valley, there's a lot of wealth. They're getting a new arena. What is this doing to the value of those teams? 
Well, you've reported that it's that everybody's going up. I mean, I think the the driver of, as I see it, being part of the NBA for 14, 15 years, the driver has been this media, these new media contracts that we've signed both locally and nationally. And they're really based on traditional media and the traditional model of the cable bundle and people paying, you know, for basic service and sort of everybody in New England is paying to, for the Celtics channel, whether they particularly watch it that night or not. So that model has driven us to new heights. But it's the partnership with the players. It's splitting the revenues with the players. It's labor peace and just re-signing our CBA for another nine or ten years, whatever it is. I was on that committee um, and, and proud to be on the committee. So that it's a golden age for the NBA. Great players, a stable environment, uh, and you know, engaged fans. We really we're growing. Um, so it's a great time for the NBA. I can't say technology has driven that. I can say that though we are trying to build for the future with technology and, and keep the engagement with the younger fans, the newer fans, bring them in, and technology is a big piece of that. Would you agree that the sort of the TV everywhere component to the recent media deal uh, with TNT and uh, ESPN, that, you know, two point seven billion dollars a year starting this year, astronomical. I think the previous deal was nine hundred thirty million dollars right. a year, so almost three times. Uh, you know, I could cheat take my socks off, use my toes to count here. I mean, phenomenal. Blew past everybody's expectations. My sense is, is that the technology and the streaming component to that added significant value to that deal. I agree. I also think, though, that when there's so many pipes and so many ways that people can watch, whether it's Hulu or uh, HBO on the go, you know, HBO Go, whatever, all the different ways to watch other than traditional the one appointment viewing that you really must have for so many people is live sports and the live major sports. And those are still, this is the battleground. We benefited from being, you know, part of the battleground, whereas it's the traditional companies that really kept us for long-term, you know, big dollars because they didn't want us to go somewhere else. And I've been talking to some sports bankers who who they tell me they think that the league's operating income because there's labor peace, uh, and you have the new CBA, and because of the new TV deal that literally, the on an operating basis, the profits for the league could double this year versus last year. Now, in my mind, I'm trying to cheat ahead to next year's valuations, but but am I uh, too far off base here? I, I haven't looked at it at a league level. I know at the Celtics we feel good about things, but we're planning to reinvest in all of our players. So, you know, we, we spend just about everything we we can on players and particularly in the next couple of years league-wide it's definitely getting better a few years ago it wasn't that great um and we uh we had a work stoppage and ended up um you know striking a new deal with the players you know five six years ago um things are now better for both sides and lastly i'd say i know you're never going to sell the celtics but if you would how much do you think you can get for them? No, that's the one question. <laughs> Not for me to say. They're, you know, they're priceless. I mean, it's something that, i tell you what, when, when you have one of these teams and you're part of something that's so much bigger than yourself, right, it's not my team. It's, it's Red, Red Auerbach, Bill Russell, all the people in the past, you know, Larry Bird, everybody who built it. And I'm just taking care of it for a while, but it's a real thrill. And uh, I can't imagine selling it. Well, you know, you sound really, really happy, and uh, I'm really happy for you. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Mike, nice to see you again. Thanks a lot. That's it for this episode of Forbes Sports Money. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or question, 
please email us at sportsmoney at podcastone.com. That's O-N-E dot com. Hey guys, David Smalley here, reminding you to check out Dogma Debate on the Podcast One app, iTunes, and basically everywhere else you could possibly hear a podcast. Dogma Debate is basically a way for you to peek in on conversations you've always wondered about. Say a hardcore anti-gay preacher meets an atheist who knows the Bible like the back of his hand, or a far-left social justice warrior meets a different kind of liberal who doesn't want to join in on the riots. On Dogma Debate, I talk to people who completely disagree with me, and I let them tell me why they think I'm wrong, why I should be on their team, and why they take such an extreme stance. And sometimes you'll just hear me hanging out with like-minded people and laughing during segments like Republicans Say the Darndest Things or Fact Check Yo Mama. It all happens on Dogma Debate, right here on Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. It's peak season for asparagus, which pairs perfectly with a light and crisp rosé. Mini bottles of champagne and sparkling wines are perfect for adult Easter baskets. And they're really cute, too. My perfect brunch? Belgian waffles with extra whipped cream and a holiday pour of your sweetest rosé. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following following the rule of law is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.